It's always rather um, uh, touching, I suppose, that by the end of a few days in silence, a few days of, of practicing together, uh, that it noticeably affects the entire ambience or atmosphere, not only in this room but also in the house. A certain stillness emerges, um, a certain calm, an openness, and also a, a strange sense of uh, connection between the participants, even though we've not spoken to each other very much, nonetheless there's a sense of being, being in this together. Perhaps the rain even magnifies that effect. And again, it's easy to somehow just take this as part of the process, which of course it is. But I think it's also worth dwelling on that uh, quality that we've created together. Of course, individually we might be struggling with some difficult emotions or troubles or anticipating what we're going to do when we leave tomorrow. But nonetheless, that is increasingly perhaps held in a spaciousness, in a kind of embrace, in a stillness. And hopefully, we can bring some of that back into our world. Not as a sort of passive, uh, mystical stillness, but as a, a spaciousness, an openness, a non-reactivity from whence to live, to communicate, to share, to work. And this brings us to the, um, the third of these four tasks, which I want to speak about now in a more practical sense. And that is to behold the stopping, literally, to behold the stopping of reactivity. And as I mentioned yesterday and also in response to one of the questions last night, this is not to be understood in a kind of abstract general sense that reactivity has stopped for good, but to appreciate how any particular reactive pattern, a worry, a craving, a fear, can be observed to come into being and can be observed to fade away and to stop. And it's that stopping, that moment, that is the clearly visible nirvana. That moment. The next moment, something else can happen. That's not, in a sense, important. But to learn to taste, uh, to feel, 
to sense what it's like to inhabit that still open space. As we saw last night, this space is said to be clearly visible. But if we look in other passages of the early canon, the Buddha describes Nirvana as dudaso, which means hard to see, difficult to see. The du, in fact, daso means to see. Du is the same du as in dukkha. It means hard or difficult to see, even painful to see, disturbing to see. So there seems to be, again, a, a tension or a paradox. This stopping of reactivity is clearly visible, but hard to see. An image, once again, from the Zen tradition comes to mind, and that is the image of a fish who spends its entire life swimming through the ocean in search of water. It's clearly visible, but hard to see, we imagine. So that, I think, also um, is telling us something. It takes a certain amount of attention uh, and uh, reflection uh, to see this stopping which is so clearly visible. And that's why I think it's described as a practice, as a task. It's something we need to attend to, uh, to get familiar with, to get used to. And I feel that this is one of the key um, purposes of uh, retreat. It's to familiarize ourselves with a dimension of human experience that habitually we're either too busy to attend to, we certainly receive very few cultural supports in our world that value such moments. And also, if we're kind of overloaded with um, ideas about enlightenment and, uh, and so on, we may not actually notice what, we, what is actually right before us or right inside us happening in this moment. We overlook what is actually I think quite a remarkable thing. This quietness, this stillness, this spaciousness that we've created here together. So to positively valorize those moments. Uh, again, going back to Martine's first uh, instruction, um, uh, to, to, be to be grateful, to have gratitude, to um, enjoy 
positively such an experience, to celebrate that. We've created the conditions in our own lives and together to open up um, a clearing, an openness within ourselves that might afford new possibilities of living. Because that's really what it's all about. It's how we, and this is the real practice, is how do we translate this experience we're having now into a framework for an ethical life. That to me is the real challenge. Nirvana in uh, some of the Pali texts is defined very simply, as I've already said, as uh, the, the, the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of delusion. And as I, I've, I've said, this is not to be understood in a, in a broad, general, abstract sense. But at the moment that any reaction stops, any specific reaction stops, that affords a glimpse of nirvana. In some of the later writings, Nagarjuna, Shantideva, they use the expression, uh, the natural nirvana. The nirvana that's actually implicit in the very unfolding of the world itself. The um, the emptiness, as it sometimes describes, that allows whatever arises to arise. If we translate that into more concrete terms, it comes back to this same idea of the momentary or prolonged absence of reactivity. One of the great things about information, our new cyber world, let's say, is that the whole of the Pali Canon is online. And you can do a search for any Pali term or phrase by just plugging it in and pressing go. So I plugged in ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of delusion, the definition of nirvana, pressed go, and it turns out that the same phrase is used to define three other things. The unconditioned, the deathless, and fully knowing. So the unconditioned um, actually refers not to some ultimate truth or anything like that. It refers to those moments when we are not conditioned by greed, by hatred, by confusion. The deathless, likewise, doesn't refer to some permanent state of some eternal well-being, but it refers to those moments where we're not in the grip of death. Certainly the word deathless and very likely the word unconditioned were already used at the Buddha's time as a kind of uh, 
metaphor for God or an ultimate truth, the nature of reality. But I think what the Buddha does is he turns these ideas into eminently uh, specific and concrete moments of our actual experience. Those moments when we're not caught up in reaction and thereby are freed to live non-reactively. But again, not in a general sense, but in a given moment. What is perhaps more surprising is that the same definition, absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of delusion, is also the definition of fully knowing or embracing. In other words, the first task, to embrace dukkha, to fully know dukkha, which means the condition we are in at this moment. Here, of course, it means something like to know ourselves, to know the world in a way that's not inflected by what we want, what we don't like, or what is in our self-interest. And I think it's rather striking that fully knowing dukkha comes down to the same thing as stopping reactivity. There's a kind of a, um, a kind of a feedback loop within these tasks, how each one somehow feeds into the others. And what it suggests, I mean the texts themselves don't say this, I'm interpreting, but it seems that um, to fully know or embrace life is a nirvanic act. That nirvana is actually present whenever we engage or embrace or experience the world in a non-reactive way. Nirvana is now, in other words. I'd like to um, pursue this line of thought by bringing in the question that Martin spoke of yesterday, what is this? Now, how does this fit into this model? I think at one level, it is another way of fully knowing. It's part of the first task, which implies that when we pay attention to our experience, it's not just that we highlight those features such as impermanence and dukkha and not-self, which are the classic definition in the early texts, but also this knowing um, entails a degree of uncertainty, of curiosity, of questioning, and again, paradoxically perhaps, it's a knowing that is also a not knowing. Whenever we question, whether it's a trivial question, like, where is Newton Abbott? Or 
a deeper philosophical question like, what is this? Implicitly, we are acknowledging that we don't know where Newton Abbott is, otherwise we wouldn't have to ask. And we don't know what this is. Likewise, if we did, we wouldn't have to ask. This opens up, I feel, an appreciation of life as in some very significant sense profoundly uh, mysterious and strange and weird. And yet our habitual mind, again this is probably because of our biological, social, cultural conditioning, um, tends to inhabit a world in which we feel uh, confident that we know what's going on. We know what it's all about. We are able to label different things. If you're a bird watcher and you see a bird you don't recognize, you say, what's that? And then you say, oh, it's okay. It's a lesser something or other songbird or whatever. Um, and as soon as we're able to give it a label, we can say, I know what it is. And that might be useful um, in your ornithology club, but in some ways it um, deprives that moment of its mystery. It's now become an object of knowledge and you can tick it in your Twitcher's manual. You've seen it. But in doing so, you've achieved something, knowledge, but very possibly you've lost something, the sense of wonder that such a being exists. So when we ask ourselves, what is this? Um, we're opening ourselves to um, uh, the wonder of life, the strangeness of life, the mysteriousness of what's going on. And I feel that this kind of meditation practice um, is not leading us to an enlightenment that will give us certainty about everything that's happening. We'll have answers to all our questions. But arguably, it's um, making us more aware of um, how little we know. This reminds us perhaps of Socrates and his famous statement that the older he gets, uh, the more he realizes how little he knows, that the wise person is the one who strangely knows the least in some respects. And this too, I think, is an affirmation of a kind of humility in the face of this um, extraordinary world in which we find ourselves. But I think this questioning also addresses the issue of reactivity. We've spoken of reactivity in terms of attraction, aversion, craving, hatred, fear. In other words, quite demonstrable and recognizable emotions. And that's generally, I think, how we use the term. 
if someone is regarded as being reactive, that usually means they are emotionally reactive. And it brings us to question what we mean in the third of these three reactive fires, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's always the tricky one. What does that mean? I don't think generally of delusion as a reaction. So let's try to unpack that a bit. Um, I think at one level, delusion is shorthand for a kind of instinctive self-interest. In other words, what's it got to do with me? And it becomes recognizable as a reaction, let's say when you're involved in a discussion or you're trying to explain something to someone, or particularly when you're having to say something that might be a little sensitive or difficult, that what often is provoked is this um, rather deep-seated concern, what are they going to think about me? If I say this, what will they say in return? Maybe they won't like me anymore. And all those kinds of uh, self-centered fears and worries, I think, are quite good examples of reactive patterns. And very often it's that fear that's built into, you know, how do I appear? What do people think? That inhibits us, that holds us back from being truly open and honest. We're more concerned with the impression we make than the effect of a particular insight or truth that we might be um, uttering. So this delusion, and I don't think delusion is a very good word in English, to be honest, but I can't really find a better one. Uh, I've sometimes wondered where it may be that vanity might work. Uh, in other words, a kind of almost narcissistic preoccupation with how I appear. But we could push this even further. And this, in fact, is how Buddhist philosophy um, has developed in recognizing that reactivity is not just overt emotion, but also... Um, is perhaps built into our organism at a much less uh, apparent uh, fashion. And there's an important passage in the Pali Canon that actually gives rise to the, the philosophy of Nagarjuna, the Madhyamaka philosophy, that takes place in discussion with a man called Kachanagota. And the text starts by saying, or the Buddha, the, the Buddha, Buddha is speaking, uh, and he says, you ask me about what is complete vision or right view. And he starts by saying, for the most part, the world is in thrall to the duality of it is and it is not. But someone who sees 
the arising of the world, in other words, the person who, when you notice how things come about, you cannot say, it is not, because something's happening. And when you observe that same thing fade away and disappear, you can no longer say, it is. So the Buddha recognizes that perhaps at one of the roots of our reactive behavior is because we're committed to uh, a rather black and white dualism between this is and this is not, between yes and no. And this is built into the very structure of language itself. Now, it doesn't sound uh, terribly uh, meaningful in English to talk of this as reactivity. But nonetheless, I feel what it's pointing to is a kind of innate habit of uh, conceiving of ourselves and the world in terms of it is and it is not. Being and non-being in philosophical language. In other words, this habit we have of categorizing, labeling, fixing things as this or that, as being or not being. We carve the world up in our minds. So when we engage in a practice like, what is this? We are actually learning to suspend the habit of it is and it is not. When I ask, where is Newton Abbott, or let's say, what is this? I'm opening myself to uh, an awareness that does not yet say it is this or it is that. You may find that when you ask this question, what is this, it immediately uh, triggers um, an answer. That's how we've been trained in our education. If the teacher asks a question, we're expected to give an answer. So when we say, what is this, particularly if we're just uh, trying this practice out for the first time, it's hardly surprising that the mind immediately wants to provide an answer. It wants to foreclose the, the questioning, perhaps the, the uncomfortable feeling of not knowing, of ignorance, rather than exploring how that not knowing that questioning might be opening the world up to allow us to experience ourselves and everything else no longer in the categories of it is this or it is not this. So by remaining with this question, we're also remaining uh, in a kind of suspension that I feel is again quite close to a non-reactive space. 
Although the reactivity here, the wanting to know this or know that, um, is not exactly what we would tend to call a reaction. It's more a, a deeply seated uh, habit of mind. But I think perhaps the crucial point is to once again consider how such questioning, how such not knowing, um, affords new possibilities of responding to life rather than simply reacting according to our conditioning. And I think we see very good illustrations for this in the records of the early Chan or Zen teachers that are recorded in uh, texts like the Blue Cliff Record, for example, which give us lots of examples of dialogues or exchanges between a teacher and a student. And sometimes these are very difficult to understand uh, you know, conceptually. They seem kind of weird and wacky. But I think what they're pointing to is how the teacher, the Zen master, if you wish, has the job of provoking the student to respond rather than just to react. The student, if they're Buddhist monks, are likely uh, to react to a question about Zen or Buddhism by offering a Buddhist doctrine or the right kind of Buddhist answer. But what the Zen master wants to do is to break us out of that particular mindset, that certainty that this teaching is somehow correct and allow our own voice to emerge. So in these koans, uh, we get um, articulations of uh, a monk or a, or, or a student um, that suddenly brings forth a new voice. In other words, the practice has, as it were, become that person's own life. They're not mimicking or repeating what Buddhism or Zen has said up to this point, but they're actually finding uh, the courage and the clarity to state something or sometimes there's often just an inarticulate gesture in which um, an insight, an understanding has arisen uh, that is genuinely their own. And in that sense they become, as it says in the Pali texts, independent of others. There's one Zen uh, phrase that repeats quite a lot where when the teacher is satisfied with the students having found his or her own autonomy in the practice, they say, um, now you've reached a point where you can throw me over your shoulder. In other words, you can dump the teacher at that point and get on with your life. And I feel that this too is very much what uh, is involved in learning to be 
responsive rather than reactive in what we say and what we do. So I would suggest that for our last uh, day here together that we continue with whatever practice of meditation we've found to be most helpful in this week, but in such a way that we also periodically reflect on how um, we might consolidate these different exercises and these different ideas we've been exploring um, and see how they come to bear on the experience that we are undergoing right now and also, to be honest, how that might prepare us for our return to our so-called ordinary lives uh, when we leave here tomorrow, if we are leaving tomorrow. So, I would suggest that if you wish to stay more with this questioning, um, try to think of it in terms of how it is a suspending of that uh, deeply seated reactivity to be certain, to know that this is the case or that is the case, and instead just rest in that unknowing, which is also an absence of attachment, an absence of resentment, an absence of, of certainty that I know. And also, um, just periodically, to come to rest in the conscious uh, valorizing of uh, the still, clear space that we have been building up together over the past few days and thereby somehow affirming this third task of beholding the stopping. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.